Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new comics on sale May 12, 2021. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. We have a bunch of tweets that came through and mentions from some listeners who are reacting to our Branson Reese episode, our Gambit episode. So I wanted to read a couple of these. Uh, reminder to anybody out there, please use hashtag Marvel's Pull List and mark them okay to read. We will try and make sure you're okay with us reading your tweets on the show. But I've got a thread in here from Mr. Titanium at Mr. Titanium 18 who said he listened to that episode, the Gambit episode, didn't know much about Gambit, did some Googling. He's a conflicted man. His quote-unquote weaselness seems (laughs) to be part of his powers. He's been through a ton. I love weaselness being one of Gambit's powers. Yeah, I think that gets to the heart of the matter very quickly. Yeah. Mr. Titanium has a great thread going through like his thoughts about this character, about Gambit. Another tweet says, he's a fascinating character. What I can tell for sure is that if you see Gambit in the story, there is no telling where he will go or how he will be. He's an enigma used by others who claim to want to help, which is a good point. He has been used a lot. Also, he's a creep. That's my two cents in there. (laughs) And then another one from Bilal Alayan at Bilal underscore Alayan saying, hey, after listening to Marvel's pull list, it got me a Gambit fan thinking what makes him appealing. I could understand why many people are thrown off by Gambit. He seems like a character of the times and many feel he doesn't age well. But what I see is a man that is judged on the surface. I believe the way he was brought up and forced to fight his brother-in-law right after marriage changed him and maybe affected his character. When he met Rogue, it changed him. He fell in love and would die for her in a heartbeat. He did complete his arc and they got married. And then he points out some key issues on Kenny X-Men 297, X-Men Gold number 30, that really uh, Bilal suggests anybody want to see some Gambit, go out and read. And also Bilal says, I think Gambit and Rogue is up there with Peter and Mary Jane and Wiccan and Hulkling. Do not go near Wiccan and Hulkling. That is the purest romance. <laughs> I don't want Gambit stink anywhere near our favorites, Billy and Teddy. Come on now. But thank you, Bilal. That was, that was a great tweet in there. And then finally, Brian Stranko jumped on our last episode saying, talking about a Solist Utini on the show has Brian wondering what sort of novelty martini would best represent the planet Solist. The barren lava planet makes me think of maybe some spicy fruity things served with a chocolate lava cake. Ooh, a little mixology on the pull list this week. <laughs> yeah. Look, this is not just the show about mixed drinks or conjecture <laughs> about Gambit. No, we are here to tell you all about the brand new Marvel Comics on sale this week. Got a bunch to run through. We're going to give you our picks, our favorites, and then we're going to hand out some awards. Tucker, what awards are we handing out this week? Um, I don't know. I was thinking top 10 list. It's not a top 10 We're also reading more than 10 books and we're not doing it in like sequential order, but I guess it's just the top 10 list. It's the spirit of that and the love of that in general. It's just the moniker. Perfect. So we'll be giving out our top 10 list awards later in the episode. And our guest this week for our reading club is going to be Angelique Roche, our friend, our podcast compatriot here at Marvel. She is going to be talking about Strike Force. We'll get into that a little bit later, but we should dive into our picks of the week. I am going to start things off with not one, not two, but three picks of the week. 
because I am going under the Heroes Reborn umbrella. Uh, I am by the bearded beauty that is Jason Aaron writing Heroes Reborn number two. It's got art by Dale Keown and Carlos Magno in the main story. Inks by Scott Hanna and Carlos. Colors by Edgar Delgado. And then there's a backup story which is also written by Jason with art by Ed McGinnis, inks by Mark Morales, and colors by Matthew Wilson. And then the other two are also going to be Heroes Reborn books tied to this. But this one is really focused on Hyperion. Hyperion is his big, strong country boy from space who landed here and was adopted by wonderful parents and learned truth, justice, and the American way. It's great. It's about him in this topsy-turvy, turned-around world in which there have been no Avengers, and we see him as the main superhero in this world and what that means. The book opens with the coming of Galactus and what that means in a world where there's no Fantastic Four, who stops them? Well, Hyperion's there. I will not give away the big moment of how Hyperion has to stop Silver Surfer and Galactus, but I was like, oh, damn, that's some moves, Jason Aaron and Del Keown and crew. What's cool about this is it you get a sense of the world building. A lot of the side characters, the Marvel characters that you are familiar with and you know, like Reed Richards and Ben Grimm and where they are in here, sort of the history of things, how they use the negative zone as a prison. And then in this, you get to see a bunch of villains, sort of the world established, how Hyperion has worked in and around this. You get to see just great character stuff in here. And one of the reasons why I wanted to bring in the other two books is that this issue really does sort of dive over into the other titles. You get to see Peter Parker in this issue, and we also get this week a a Heroes Reborn, Peter Parker, The Amazing Shutterbug issue, which is so good. And it basically says like, hey, in this world, what happened to Peter is that like he was going to the science fair where he would have been bitten by the radioactive spider but he gets bullied and that doesn't happen. And his path goes in a very different direction. He doesn't get those powers. And it's written by Mark Bernadine with art by Raphael De La Torre and Ron Lim and Scott Hanna, colors by Jim Campbell. It's really great. Mark's a buddy. So it was really fun to see him do this. If you don't know Mark, he co-hosts the Fat Man on Batman podcast with Kevin Smith. Mark is just wonderful. He writes for TV. He's written a bunch of comics for us. This issue It's so good, so well-paced, and you get a Peter Parker in this issue that shows up in Heroes Reborn number two that doesn't have any powers, but he is Peter Parker, and you feel for him, and he goes through so much stuff. And then the other Heroes Reborn issue is Heroes Reborn, Hyperion, and the Imperial Guard, which is also hinted at in the main Heroes Reborn number two, because you see that some of the villains that have been locked away in the negative zone are members of the Imperial Guard, like Guardian and Oracle and them, but they have been taken over by the Brood. And this issue of Hyperion and the Imperial Guard is wonderfully done because it posits that this is the final issue of that series, Hyperion and the Imperial Guard, from 1992 in telling this story. So you come in media res in what would have been you know, 10 years of storytelling of these characters and a young Hyperion is living out in space with the Imperial Guard and they are, you know, dealing with stuff and he's coming back and it's, you can see the homage to other materials in here, but it's going to have this wonderful story of Hyperion going back to Earth with love and with hope and excitement. And it's so devastating 
what he has to go through. And there's emotional beats in here at the beginning and at the end of this issue. And it's written by Ryan Cady, art by Michele Bandini, with inks by Elisabetta D'Amico and Michele, with colors by Eric Arciniega. You know, you get the sense that they really thought about the world and the universe that led up to this moment. And you even get a second story that's a preview of what the title turns into, which is a Starjammers book starring the Summers family, Corsair and Cyclops and Havoc and Rocket and Groot. And uh, there's a Nova in there. And it's, it's a delicious treat I want more of. Give me this alternate universe, build it out, give me a bunch of stories. It's really fun. This team did great work. Everybody's just nailing it. I'm I know people look at Heroes Reborn and like they think of the 90s series in some ways. And this is its own thing. And it's kicking so much ass. I totally agree. It's so, so much fun. All right. My pick this week is Spider-Man Spider's Shadow number two, which is written by Chip Zdarsky with art by Pasquale Ferry, colors by Matt Hollingsworth and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Something I always love to note, if you're looking at this credits page as you're reading, it says logos and design by Chip Zdarsky. I just love that. I think it speaks to the level of detail and care that he has about these things. He really, really is so invested down to the logos. That level of care is, is really, really incredible. So diving into this story, this story, of course, being that Spider-Man keeps the infamous black suit from the aftermath of Secret Wars and what that does to him. In issue one, Spidey kills Hobgoblin in a very brutal way. I don't want to get too much into spoilers on issue two here, but I will just say that there's a bunch more brutality in here. We know this is a what-if story, exploring something very, very different to what we know in the 616. But somehow still, when you have the name Peter Parker and you see this character doing certain things, it's still shocking. We get Wilson Fisk in here. We get a bunch of classic Spidey villains who are put into a very unique situation now because they're dealing with an entirely different foe for them. And so we as readers are put into a new position because that dynamic is so thrown off. It is such a chip story in that way because it's asking these big questions but there's so much emotion at the center of it. Like it really is grabbing you in the middle of your core, in your chest, and like just lifting you off the ground and swinging you back and forth in the midst of this hectic, chaotic, super powerful, visceral story. You still can't help but feel for these characters. This is one of those things where it is this what if story, but we're getting to go beyond that first issue. It's not just a 20 page in and out. We see what happens on page 21 and then on page 60 and 80. There's so much to love about this story. Cannot go on any further without mentioning Pasquale Ferry because I just think he is so wonderfully cast in this comic. It's really just brought to you beautifully and viscerally and disgustingly and wonderfully by this team. It's Temple of Doom, pull your heart out of your chest kind of stuff. All right, last uh, pick of the week is X-Factor number nine. Uh, it is written by Leah Williams. Art in here is by David Baldion with colors by Israel Silva, letters by VC Joe Caramagna. David Baldion, every time we get an X-Factor issue, I am gobsmacked by how much David puts into each issue. There are 
so many intricate details to the worlds and the characters on top of the fashion and the acting and the emotion that he puts forth in every single page. And he's got great scripts to work with. There's a part in here where the team is sort of working on a case and they're inside a character's mind, but there's also something happening in the physical world. And Rachel, she sort of is acting as this conduit between the two. So she starts one panel in a conversation inside the mind and the border between the two panels, her head is turned and her sentence continues and she keeps talking in the physical world to a different character. It's such a subtle thing, but it is so expertly done by everybody who's working on this book. And there's so many layers to the story. It's You've got this team investigating why like a death god has been inhabiting itself inside Siren and causing horrors and troubles and death. And we get nasty looks at inside like a manifestation of the Morrigan and what that means. And we get to suss out, all right, how do we deal with this, and it gets them into the Mojo-verse. So then you get beautiful, weird-looking Mojo stuff again from this team. You get the music side. We get to see a mutant band in here, which has got, of course, Dazzler in it, but Lila Cheney. Anytime you give me Lila Cheney, I am here for her. She's the best. We've got a bunch of great characters in here. We've got Mojo. We've got Shatterstar becoming very important to the storyline. And there's this big action, big moments, funny bits, and it ends on just beautiful emotional moments with Shatterstar sort of coming to terms with like, he's free from one thing that has been done to him and he can go back to the man he loves. It's so good. I freaking love this book. This is the penultimate issue of this run. Everybody should go read all the X Factor issues in trade, in single issue, or on Marvel Unlimited right now and catch up with this issue this week. That's what we have for our picks of the week. Now we are diving right into every single new Marvel comic heading to shelves near you. And we are kicking off with Black Cat number six. Jed McKay, I think, has this incredible ability, an ability that I think belongs to writers who can write at the absolute highest level of responsibility in the comic book industry. I'm talking about the biggest events, the biggest characters. It's not just that. It's also his command of the character's voice. And that's something that we've gotten to know very well over the course of these couple of Black Cat runs that Jed has done. There's this little bit of dialogue. It just is so perfect. It's literally three words between two characters that just gets to the heart of Felicia Hardy so beautifully. Someone says to Felicia, be careful. And she says, never. And goes off. It's so cool. It's so perfect. So much to love about Black Cat and Jed and the whole thing. Yeah. All right. Over in Children of the Atom number three, we've got a lot of wonderful teenage angst going on in here. And my top 10 list award of the week goes to Paco Medina for handling the emotional highs and lows. There's this beautiful panel of two characters sort of like hugging but they're in this will-they-won't-they mode of their friendship, and it's really sweet, but also as you go through and you see the storyline, you realize how sad it is at the same time. It's really cool. Next up, we have Conan the Barbarian, number 21, and this gets my top 10 list award for getting stabbed through the throat. (laughs) There is some classic 
Conan visceral action in here that I think is just so perfect. Jim Zub is writing this story. I think he has just a perfect command, not just of Conan, but of the world. And then Corey Smith bringing you the art. And that art in particular, I'm thinking of this one moment where Conan is in the middle of a battle and we get this amazing close-up of someone's throat getting ripped out from the front. It's so kinetic. It's so full of energy. Um, just like all good Conan stories are. Yeah. Over in Fantastic Four, number 32, I'm just going to give this my top 10 list award of the week for first bunch of doom. We got a lot of doom this week. We just, this is our first bunch of doom. There's going to be another bunch of doom later on, but this one, we're getting into the Bride of Doom storyline in the main part of the book. We're getting into seeing how much of a trash fire Johnny Storm is and how this is all going to end, I'm sure, horribly for everyone in this storyline. Dan Slott doing the best that he can to uh, cause chaos and heartache for so many characters. But there's a second story written by Dan with art by Javier Rodriguez, who's one of my favorite artists. And Javier gets to draw Dr. Doom and Reed Richards having a chess match at the same time as having a sword duel. It is beautiful. Every page could be a poster, and I would put them up on my wall and look at it for days and be like, this is comic books. Yes. All right. Next up, we have Giant Size Amazing Spider-Man King's Ransom number one. What I enjoyed about it most, it feels like, and this is my top 10 list, goes to, it's like a street-level Avengers kind of in this issue. We have... Wolverine and Luke Cage and Jess Jones, Hawkeye, Iron Fist, Spider-Woman, other characters show up in here and you get some really awesome big team moments in a way that we haven't really often in an Amazing Spider-Man book, nor would you really expect to. But it's really, really cool to do that. So to share the love, to spread the wealth like we get to do here in particular, I love seeing uh, Luke mix things up in this issue. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Over in Guardians of the Galaxy number 14, it gets my top 10 list award of the week for second bunch of Doom for this week. Al Ewing, wonderful, wonderful Doom writer. And also, there's big stuff brewing in this book, and you can feel it. And it also sort of feeds into uh, Fantastic Four a little bit in some of the conversations, knowing that Dan Slott and Al Ewing work together on Empire, and then how their threads feel like they're tied together in in very interesting ways. Feels like what I love about the Marvel Universe is that like everything's got this little bit of connection and you don't have to read everything to understand. But when you do and you see those connections, it makes everything feel so much cooler. Uh, Next up, we have Silk number three. There are like five different things that I could give out an award to in this because I, I love so many different individual elements of this series. But I might just give it to Maureen Goo and the general weirdness in the best way that this book has and the direction it's going. There's that classic, amazing spider hero balance of like the deeply personal story of Cindy. But we also have this strange supervillain side of the story that's slowly starting to emerge that I just love. So just that mixture of things, the humanity of it, but also the weirdness of it, it's the best. Throw it into a blender, you get silk, and boy, is that delish. (laughs) We've got a couple more books left. We've got Spider-Woman number 12, and this gets 
No top 10 list award for me because Carla Pacheco is a monster. The <laughs> things she does to my heart in this issue, I refuse to award her. I will <laughs> award Pere for the art in here. And it is beautiful. There's a incredible action sequences. And I think about every time how he's a martial artist and how that factors into every single time that characters like throw hands and kicks and stuff. And so Perry Perez, you get more award, but Carla, you get nothing. <laughs> if you don't know, I'm kidding. This is a great book. And Carla is incredible. I am so happy with this book, except that it makes me very, very sad. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Now we jump over to Star Wars for Star Wars number 13. This is the prelude to the War of the Bounty Hunters and the Hunt for Han Solo. My top 10 list in here goes to what is an awesome training sequence for Luke Skywalker. I really love it in particular because we have the overall plot, the overall story that we're exploring. But getting those moments where you can track where this character is, in particular between the events of Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, that's such a monumental moment. You go from the entire movie where Luke is just spending his time training and he's still a bit new to it all, to Return of the Jedi where he comes in returning as the Jedi. So getting to explore that area where we're seeing that growth, we're seeing the character becoming something different is so much fun. Because I love it so much, because I am way too obsessed, I'm going to continue on. If you're a Star Wars fan, if you were inspired last week by all the events of May the 4th, might I recommend Star Wars The High Republic number five? Because not only is it a brand new Star Wars story, brand new characters, and an era that has yet to be explored that deeply in just these five issues alone, we have gotten to know these characters super well, and there really does feel like there's a lot at stake. I want to give a top 10 list to colorist Annalisa Leone. A lot of this issue takes place at night, and there's lightsaber duels happening. There are strange, weird lights all set around, so... The entire story is colored beautifully by the light bouncing off of these characters' faces, the drama of it all, the sort of noir influences that we get as we're reading in the middle of what is a really, really, really emotional story. So kudos to the entire creative team for pulling that out of a hat. Like I said, in just five issues, the story continues very soon in what is, like I said, a new era of Star Wars exploration, and that's just something... I'm always coming to the table for. Yeah. All right. Our final book of the week is X-Corp number one. It's a great issue. Great kickoff to this series, which explores like the, you know, when you say it's the corporate side of Krakoa, that might not seem exciting, but the team is friggin' great. You've got Monet, who turns into Penance. You have Angel, who turns into Dark Angel. You've got Madrox, and you've got Trinary. Trinary, for anybody who doesn't know, is a great character introduced in X-Men Red a couple years ago. She's like a technopath, I believe, where she can converse with machines. My top 10 list award for this issue probably goes to Madrox. I just love seeing Madrox being used in wonderful ways and he has a really cool purpose in Krakoa, and it's expanding in this issue. I, I'm very excited to see how this book sort of expands on what the big missions for Krakoa will be. Yeah, definitely agreed. Jumping over to new collections coming to you this week. We have a bunch as usual. 
if you're in a first family mood, might I suggest Fantastic Four by Jonathan Hickman, the complete collection of volume three, as well as volume seven of Fantastic Four, which is titled The Forever Gate. That's also coming to you in trade paperback. Yes. And over in Marvel Unlimited, a lot of great issues. There's five King and Black issues out this week, a couple of King and Black tie-in issues, an issue of Venom. So a lot to jump into there. A new issue of Runaways, which is always one of our favorite books. The first issue of Avengers Mech Strike is definitely, definitely something I highly suggest everybody check out. And then, of course, issue number seven of X Factor. So you can heed our advice and catch up on X Factor. If you read all seven issues in Marvel Unlimited, you got one more between uh, the new issue that's out this week. Go to your local comic shop, pick it up, catch up on one of our absolute favorite titles. And speaking of Marvel Unlimited, while you're over there, why don't you read Strike Force 2019, written by Teeny Howard, because that's the book that we're talking about on this week's Reading Club with the one and only Angelique Rocher. All right, folks, hold on to your butts because we got some glorious in-house of ideas guestership today. And it comes in the form of the unbelievably great Angelique Rocher. Angelique, this has been a long time coming. Man, I'm so happy. I just like, honestly, I miss y'all so much and I get to talk about comics I've never been this quiet. That's how happy I am, <laughs> is that I'm just stunned and in awe of seeing my friends. Hello. It's so sad because we used to do Marvel Live together, so we would hang out for hours every week. But here we are talking about Strike Force. Angelique, why'd you pick this book? So one of the things I love about big events, like War of the Realms, which is, this is tangential to War of the Realms for those who read that and all this is kind of in the pocket, is I'm the person that always goes, so what the heck is happening everywhere else when this is going down? There are other things happening, right? And I'm always a person to ask what happens to the world that gets blown up? What happens to the spaces? What happens to the people that live there? Do they live on? Well, this, this right here, besides having some of my favorite characters, i.e. Blade, Wiccan, Monica Rambeau, Jessica Drew. Like, the funny thing is, true story, Ryan Panagos, during a Marvel Live, which you mentioned earlier that we used to do together, we interviewed Teeny Howard. And in the green room, Teeny was like bubbling. Like, she was just like giddy over something. I was like, dude, what are you talking? She's like, and I was like, you know my favorite character is Monica Rambeau? And she goes, is she? Well, I've got something I can't tell you. It's a secret, but something's happening. <laughs> and so basically she was teasing Strike Force to me. And she was like, it's supernatural and crazy things happen and blades in it. And I was like, I'm sold. Cool. So circle back around. I just really love Teeny's writing, the pacing, the bad jokes. I have literally taken pictures of panels and like texted Teeny and be like, I hate you. <laughs> like, I, I just, I don't, what is this? How did you fit this here? And then you get Hulkling and it, it's just, it's so good. And Teeny just loves the character so much. I was like, we got to do this because it's weird. But also, it's its own little pocket. It's nine issues. People can easily get it, even without reading the rest of the War of the Realms, particularly if you pick up the trades, which volume one, volume two, actually in, in the volume two, it kind of breaks down a little bit of how they got there in the first place. So I like it because it's also accessible. And the art is so pretty. Yeah, that was, that was one of the things that like immediately struck me upon going back because I am a mega massive fan of Teeny Howard, one of the best writers around, one of the best people around. 
And Herman Peralta's art in here is really incredible. It's gorgeous. Like from page one, you're right there. And on top of that, it's always exciting, literally in and of itself, when you see the words Jordy and Belair on the cover of a comic book. And so combined, it's it's like this beautiful book. It's great. And, and, and I think it, like thematically and tonally, it just all works so well. You know, it's a Moss and Brunstad production, as so many of the best books around are. So yeah, it's just like one of those creative team, like magical combinations that just works so well from right at the beginning. Well, the funny thing is I have a special place in my heart for Moss and Brunstead because they also edit all of the Marvel's Voices books. So they also are like, hey, man, play with the characters. As long as you don't mess up the continuity, have fun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the things that I I was thinking about when specifically looking at the cast of this title, we have Blade, Angela, Spectrum, Winter Soldier, Spider-Woman, Wiccan, Hellstrom. Like that is what many would call a diverse cast, but I think the importance of this cast and something I thought about, I've been thinking about lately after talking to writer Vida Ayala is this is a diverse cast, but it's, I think what works about this is it's just normal. This is the normalization of diversification of our characters because our world, our universe is so diverse and having a team that is this because it's the team that just works here, the normalizing of having such a wide group is so perfect and so good and so important, I think, for anybody who comes in and finds their way to this book because they like Jessica Drew or they are a big Bucky stan and they're like, I want to read every comic that Bucky's ever shown up on. Then they get introduced to Angela or Blade or Wiccan. Like that rules so hard. And I love that because that's this is actually the first time I've, and I, I know of Hellstrom Like Hellstrom has been in books that I've read, but this is like an introduction to Hellstrom's personality. And that's the thing that I love about Teenie's writing. There are so many strong personalities in this book and every single one of those personalities gets an opportunity to shine. And their particular powers, and and exactly what you just said, Ryan, because it's not just like diversity on, oh, they're from different geographical regions or different race or different planets. But also, like, their powers are different, their motivations are different, their origin stories are different, and all of those different specs make this book so much fun. And I gotta say, like, I think a lot of people don't give credit to the artist on this. The panels were placed in a way where this story could have been, like, there's so much that happens in this story. It could have been overwhelming, but it felt so well-paced. The direction was so well done. Like, it's one of those books where I just kind of go, I want to see the scripts. And see how this was like really broken down in a digestible way that still comes out as fun at the right moments, dorky at the right moment. And then Deadpool. How did you find a place for Deadpool? (laughs) I'm glad you bring up the panels. And one of the things I like about the panels is that Herman is an artist that utilizes small panels really efficiently and effectively. He has a lot of splashes and cool things, but like a very thin horizontal panel or small panels that are really close up on a hand or a weapon widescreen, small, shrunk down, like they pack so much into these pages in a way that, like you said, Angelique, is not overwhelming. It furthers the story. It's very smart storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. A perfect example of that is Bucky and Monica playing like the flick football game when they're like being held by the Avengers right at the start of issue one. And it's so funny. You can pack in little moments of information or exposition in those kind of things or just like little fun comedy moments just like that. 
Angelique, I think that's such an astute point about teeny scripts because rereading this series, it's so like fly by the seat of your pants, but it's so organic. And, you know, we open it up and it, we're basically reading an Avengers story. And then I love that reveal of like the introduction to the team of the Avengers happen upon this group of weirdos doing something that they're not supposed to be doing. And then Blade sees that as an opportunity to say, like, these are the perfect people to help me with this thing I got to do, which, of course, because it's Blade is like this capital W weird, like mystical undead crap. And I need them because I don't want to tell the Avengers what's up. So just just in explaining that, it's like, oh, it's an Avengers story. Oh, wait, it's about Bucky and, and Monica and Angela and these characters. Oh, wait, now Blade has just burst through the wall and now he's taking control of the story. And now we're off to this place. And now the way that we zigzag through this story is so kinetic. And I think exactly to your point, seeing how that's executed literally in words before we can attach it to the physical motion of a visual is a fascinating thing. I totally agree. And I think even in that too, is like this ecosystem feeling you get, right? So like the, the Moonstone <clears throat> situation where you're like, what's happening? Wait, what? I thought we were fighting Faye. Wait, no, we're not fighting Faye anymore. Ghost is here. Okay, cool. I'm just going to ride along with, and you go, wait, no, that is the life of a superhero. Like the superhero's life doesn't randomly stop happening. People don't stop trying to attack them just because they're on one mission. And so like when Ghost pops in, you're just like, I don't know what's happening, but I'm going to go with this. And it still makes sense, right? Because it allows the team to kind of go on another mission to work together. But then one of the things I do really love about the book is like the last panels where they're like, oh no, we're not friends, but we are friends, but we don't need to work together, right? We're going to go our separate ways. Like I got a life. (laughs) (laughs) This was fun. I don't think I read this the first time around when these issues were coming out, but I, I, I read it this time. Teeny has a letter to readers at the end of issue number one. It's great. And it's always, I love these little kind of creative touches and get to know the creator kind of little things that, that are in books sometimes. But I think it does give a glimpse at that at exactly what you're saying. And it, exactly at the power of Teeny's like concise storytelling. The opening words of this letter are, trust me. Are there any words scarier than those? Two word horror story. If you ask me, trust me. I love from that. Blade. I, yes. <laughs> yeah. I love that. It's so true. It's so true and and it's just like that little peek behind the curtain at what Teeny's doing, what this creative team is doing here and the space that they're exploring, you know what I mean? There's so much festoonery around this story between like all these wild powered heroes, the story they're going off on, the undead But at the core of it is just like, can this group of people trust each other? Can they hold on to each other long enough to be effective as a team? That's the question. And exploring that over the course of these nine issues is really where so much of the fuel of this motor comes from. And I think it's even cooler because the question is, do they trust themselves? Yeah. 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 And they have good reason not to trust, which is issue number four is one that I particularly liked because it's. One, they've got these dynamite covers. These covers are so friggin' good. They're Juan Jose Reap and Matt Wilson. Really cool, weird stuff. But the issue number four cover 
it's mentioned in issue number three, it's like Villa of Death or something like that, where they go hide out in this big old spooky house and it's real cool. And you get a bunch of flashback sequences, which tell like how some characters got their first experiences with these fae, these nasty, weird, like shape-shifting, mental manipulating creatures. And we get guest artists in there. And it's a really fun storytelling element. It, it reminded me of like a great movie or television sequence where you're like, your people are like having that cool down moment, but they're recounting different things and like commiserating in new ways and, and connecting in different ways. And then you bring in great artists like Max Fiumara and Marika Cresta and Stacey Lee. And like, it's really awesome. And knowing Teeny, this was just another way for her to tell a 1940s Cap and Bucky story in there, which yeah. is great. She was like, I'm putting Bucky in his original costume. Yep. Like, well, and it also just knowing Teeny, she's like, what, what are you going to allow me to do? You've given me the story. You let me have these characters for this moment in time. How far can I push the possibility of this story? And she, Doom Bot, that's not Doom. Oh, yeah. The, the advanced Doom. That, that was... Yo, having Wiccan face a quote-unquote doom and being freaked out that it's really doom and then have him do the switcheroo on the... Like, it's just the amount of forward planning to make some of those advanced stuff happen in the storyline. And then, like, oh, you're going to go to Doom's castle where magically you get everything you need to make you comfortable? Cool, cool, cool. (laughs) I love it. Can I have it? Thanks. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's the same thing of like going to go see Hellstrom's sister in Vegas. Like that whole Vegas situation, City of Lights, giving Monica her time to literally quote unquote shine. You know, you could just tell the love that the writer has for each one of the characters. You know, it's 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 funny when we, and I think everyone on this episode can certainly relate, is reading as much as we do. It's funny to step back every now and then and and look at it from a bird's eye view and say, what have been like the seminal issues? What have been some of my favorite issues of the month of the last year, the last few years? And, you know, I was just poking around on Teeny's page on on Marvel.com, which just, you know, shows all the books she's written. I just really love the fact that the first book on there is that Captain America annual. You go all the way to the beginning and just to kick off Teeny's story at Marvel Comics with that book. I remember so well reading it and going, what's this? Hold the phone. Because that was really special. I remember the patience, the pacing, the like knowing where to pull on those like emotional strings, introducing new characters that you find yourself caring about a lot eight pages later, all of those kind of things. You know, and that's what really makes that Captain America annual story one of those books that stands out for me when I look at you know, releases over the last few years. I love that this is more than any reading episode we've had in a while, <laughs> just like a teeny party. It's the best. It's a teeny um, party. Just a celebration of, of uh, a good writer. But the, the, it was really interesting to see what teeny was working on in the, her early days at Marvel, because it was a bunch of very, very disparate, unique at times, strange stuff. I mean, we kick things off with Captain America Annual, and then Teeny wrote 
the Belit story. Uh, How for dare you call Conan. that strange? With the queen, the pirate queen is one of my favorite comics. I'm it's sorry. great. I remember <laughs> loving it. And then Death's Head and the Thanos series. And then going into this Strike Force book, it feels like Strike Force and Excalibur, once those really started moving, that felt like these are the kinds of books that Teeny's great at writing. This is, we, we're as a collective from the editorial staff to people who are just third party readers, you know what I mean? We're all discovering this amazing talent and what Teeny is so good at. And I think it's just right there in front of us. A big part of that is a team book. It's a, a big part of that is a book where there are a bunch of different opinions in a room and we get to see those characters bouncing off of each other in a huge way. And I think so much of that comes down to just how wonderfully Teeny identifies just like with the heart of these characters. And I think a lot of that is how they think and how they think about each other. And that might seem obvious, but but the, like even in the opening pages of Strike Force, there's a conversation between Carol and Cap and Carol's like, well, Monica and Jess are in this group of people that we just busted. So like, I'm dealing with that, but also I want to do the right thing because I'm Avenger. And Cap goes, well, yeah, I get it. I mean, Bucky's in this group too. And just starting from that human place and then going outwards from there, this is the introduction to my symposium on why Tina Howard's a great writer. But it is a great reminder of seeing someone really at home in a team book like this. What you hit on really, too, is this idea of being good at dialogue. Knowing how much and how little to say and when to say it and then really knowing the, what the character's actual reactions would be while you're writing it. And I don't know how Teeny writes, but a lot of times people write a scene and then they write the dialogue. And I feel like Teeny's brain is screaming the dialogue <laughs> as she's writing the outline already. Like she just knows what the characters are going to say because of what you just said. Like there's just so much love for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, I would imagine it's a difficult thing to write so many characters and make them all sound different and unique and also adhere or at least build upon their unique and different histories. So that Blade feels like Blade. You know Bucky is Bucky. Jess feels like Jess. And you can go read Carla's amazing Spider-Woman run and get the same character and you feel that connection. That That is what we want. Like there's an obvious like, yeah, duh moment about it, but it's not that simple. There's an art to it. And Teeny and the crew are pretty dang good at it. I, I love that you brought up Jessica. Like every time Jessica Drew opens up her mouth in these books, I'm like, <laughs> that's what I know of Jessica Drew. Yep. Nope. It's I think one of the things that keeps the story going because you're either invested in the characters you already love before you got to the book. And then I'm suddenly invested in Damien Hellstrom. Why? 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 This is my first time meeting him. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like, oh, Wow. You try okay. to put a shirt on him? He says no. He burns it off. <laughs> She's too hot. It, it just it just disintegrates. <laughs> um, even the ongoing, like one of the things I, I do also love is like seeing Wiccan's journey through it because like you can tell at the very beginning, like folks' perception of Wiccan at the very beginning is like, who is this little kid? Why are you here, little wizard boy? That's part of his perception too of himself. Exactly. And it's, it projects out. But as he becomes more confident, you can see that transition. So like on top of everything we've been saying, you have 
character evolutions in this book that are so like, and I'm all, I'm always there to see Hulkling. So whatever. I know it was only for like three pages. It's fine. But I was very excited. He was like, I got to get back to my fiance. I'm out. Like, I don't, y'all are cool and everything, but this is even too crazy for me. And I, let me tell you about my life. <laughs> well, that's, I think that's tapping into a certain building block to this team dynamic that we're talking a lot about. Because it's like, of course, we're going to get at least a taste of a Hulkling appearance in this series because there is an emotional tether there to one of these main characters. And in order to really plumb the depths of who this person is, what's at risk for them, what they care about at a base level, we have to go see one of the people that, you know, they're most closely associated with, one of the people in the universe that they care most about. It just gets back to the the great axiom of like specificity, the more personal, the more creative, that kind of thing, which is why, like you were saying, Ryan, with that issue where we kind of jump back in time and then look at these character stories, it's not just the ability to like go back and play with slightly different art styles and things like that, it's, which is awesome. But to get into the micro moments that build these characters to how big they are and allow them to make these big heroic decisions and big, you know, giant moves that they make in a story like this. Angelique, we're at a time where Blade has been on the Avengers, where we know we're getting a new Blade project from the MCU, where Monica Rambeau has been in the MCU and got all souped up. How's that feel for you for seeing some of your favorite characters who have had their ups and downs and appearances and disappearances and stuff. How's that feel for you right now? It, it, no one can see the fact that I've been giddy since you started this question. <laughs> if anybody's ever heard me talk about some of my favorite characters, I love weird characters. I also am very like diehard for the characters that I love. I, you know, I think it's, I think it's really dope. And I also think in 80 years of comics, you know, and some of these folks have their, 38, 40 years, 50 years in the books, we are now getting to see their lives more fleshed out, more updated. You're getting to see new voices and new perspectives, writing them. Folks who are diehard fans of them, right? Because that's also the really cool thing is seeing these folks that are diehard fans of these characters bring them to life. So that might be my favorite part of it. Like, yes, I am very excited they're there, but I'm also very excited they're in the hands of people who love them as much as I do. Um, I was having this conversation um, with Chris Priest uh, a couple of weeks ago about his Falcon miniseries and how he wrote Falcon in a way that he was just a little bit on the challenging cap on his black and white moral Boy Scout-ish in that miniseries. And I was like, oh, I get it. Like, there has to be a different perspective that's in there. And so having these characters now be part of that conversation, be part of those teams, but also physically and like visually representing the diversity of what a superhero can look like, where they can be from, what their circumstances could have been that many times aren't perfect. They aren't like storybook superheroes. I think it's amazing. It's going to have such an incredible impact. And I also think people are really learning how much folks want to see more of these superheroes. Like the response to Blade getting a movie, I don't think anybody could have anticipated people being that excited about a Blade movie, but we were and we are. 
Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of really great points in there. One, their perspectives and like Angela is essentially immortal. So she has a much different version of what's right and what to do for the long, long haul and the what is good in the long term versus someone like Jessica or Monica and Blade, who's not quite immortal, but he's been around a very long time. He's also got a different perspective on things and he's a little bit harder edged in a lot of ways. Those are great. And it's really interesting thinking about a fan coming in and writing the characters that they love. Like it is the cycle of Marvel. You know, you think of Roy Thomas coming in in the mid late 60s. He grew up reading the Namor, Captain America, Human Torch stories and, and you know, the all Winter Squad stuff and like wanting to create all those stories and building that. And then you like Jim Starlin having been a fan and coming in and saying, you know what, I'm going to take it a different route. And when he got weird, he got incredible and, and really built some stuff. And I think that is such a great cycle. And you see it every bunch of years, how fans who love this stuff to their core who are in this profession can come in and forge new ground in ways that we didn't even know was possible. Yeah. And I really love these type of books though. Cause I think that's also like, like these books get to live a little bit outside of the larger major events and allow for characters who may not have been like of a main character in that major event to still continue on within the continuity and to continue to develop as characters. But also you just get to have fun. Like everybody, everybody, there's a bug. There's a talking bug in this book. <laughs> there is an Island of Monsters, which is in other books, but like the Island of Monsters comes back. You get Deadpool, like hell is in this book. Like everybody's in this book. It's intense, right? Mm -hmm. And I love that because there are high risk for the superheroes, but for the writer, it gives them space to play. And it gives them space to like really flesh out and do this kind of work without the kind of same constrictions of if they were writing a book that was attached to a main event and everything was kind of a little bit more rigid. Yeah. It feels like just a different kind of sandbox. I, I also want to, I want to shout out Jacopo Camagni who jumps on this book on the art and I just think is excellent as we get into these issues into the Vegas stuff into the ghost stuff the moonstone stuff some wild stuff that happens with Monica there's something about the textures and the framing I think as well there's like really interesting foreground background stuff that Jacobo does a lot and side note also Ghost's costume I think it just rules I think it's so cool and the way that Jacobo draws it is great we have a lot of good things to say about this series yeah, yeah. I don't know if we've given a glowing endorsement yet, but I feel like we have. <laughs> yeah, I think it's one of those things where a series starring a number of characters who don't really lead their own solo titles. There's no Spider-Man, there's no Captain America, there's no Wolverine, et cetera, et cetera. They get to come together in a really weird book, and it's a title that is not there's no Avengers in the title. It's just Strike Force, which is a pretty new property. Got to have nine issues after a limited series lead-in. Man, we're blessed. We get to have that stuff. It's great. I could not agree more. I I love when when we get Deadpool in this story because Deadpool just kind of can be there and have fun and insert something new, fourth wall breaking, something wild. 
and immediately easily different into a story. This might be my favorite page. And I hate to interrupt you, but as soon no, as you no. said breaking the fourth wall, this page right here where they're like, we're not monsters. And then she basically makes, which, you know, goes back to Deadpool's cards of a super, like, I was like, this is perfection. Because she uses the fourth wall break in the whole series. She uses it literally, I think, once. And in the most reserved way, but this right here could have only been done by Deadpool. You're so right. I, I, that's an issue number seven about um, about a third of the way through. There's this great nine panel page where it's essentially like these hero shots of each of these heroes as Deadpool is kind of introducing them. My favorite one is the Wiccan one where he doesn't even have to explain <laughs> like what's up with Wiccan, why Wiccan is this. He just says Wiccan is just and a witch. Just that's it. And the, and the moon silhouette of a witch on a broomstick is so funny. <laughs> I look at the Deadpool stuff in here as the thing we'll reference back in five, ten years when Teenie's writing a Deadpool series and be like, she nailed it from the go. She had it in Strike Force. Had the same exact thought. Yeah. 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 No. So I, and I think that for me, she did it with all of them, but it really stood out for me with Jessica Drew, Angela, and Deadpool. Like those three, it seemed seamless. The other thing I do I do love about this book for folks who like end up like reading it, which you should, you should, and I keep calling it a book because I'm I'm talking about just go get the trades, go get volume one and volume two and just read all of it. Or read it on Marvel Unlimited, marvel.com slash unlimited. (laughs) But like the ending, right? So like those who are like fans of Fast and Furious, because that's what this made me think of. The ending is so perfect. (laughs) Serious. Like I like I and I think the two classic moments that I love because you can. You can have a great book and completely ruin it in the last five pages. But like in the last couple of pages of issue nine, like the bows are tied. Just enough for the adventures to keep going, but the bows are tied on this adventure, right? Like you got the Avengers back in a room. You kind of tie up issue one and issue nine with the whole trust me note comes back around. You get to the bottom of this plot within a plot with the Fae. No spoilers. And then you have this Fast and Furious moment right before you have this ride off in the sunset moment. Like, Blade and Angela just going to get on a bike and just ride. Okay. All right. Makes sense to me. Cool. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Go fight some dark fairies. Cool, 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 cool. It's a good time. That was Strike Force. Those nine issues, again, are available in Collected Edition, or you can get them on Marvel Unlimited. Which is exactly where I read mine. There you go. Me too. Angelique, where is everybody going to find you and, and hear from you? Uh, you can find me at AngeliqueRoche.com, at AngeliqueRocheOfficial on IG. And now I'm on the TikToks, which is great. Wow. Uh, yeah, I am officially on the TikToks. There are more people who knew me on TikTok than I was ready for. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Angelique Roche, which is the easiest one to find. <laughs> And also a little show called Marvel's Voices. Oh, oh yeah, I forgot. I work for Marvel. Never, never mind. <laughs> I was just joking. Uh, you can also find me on Marvel's Voices. We just finished up season three. It is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Also on Women of Marvel, wherever you listen to podcasts. But also if you're on SiriusXM, you can get it a day early. You should check it out. I'm very excited. Uh, we are consistently working on stuff. And we got some dope stuff coming this summer and this fall for Marvel's Voices. As well as you should check out 
the Marvel's Voices Powers and Possibilities essay series. We, every month, spotlight a creative uh, or fan and talk about the powers and possibilities of the Marvel Universe. Um, And one just came out from Marvel's own Christine Din, which focuses on Silk. Very excited for folks to read that. Yeah, those are on Marvel.com. Thanks, Angelique. Thanks for reminding me I work for Marvel. Cool. (laughs) That's what I'm here for. (laughs) Thank you once again to dear wonderful colleague, Angelique. So much fun. I love that Strike Force series. And obviously, if we didn't make it clear enough, uh, just such big fan of Teeny Howard's writing uh, and uh, everything that went on in Strike Force. Just a great time. That wraps it up for us this week. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marquez, Jorge Estrada, with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager, and he's a huge fan of Strike Force. And of course, when he talks about Strike Force, he means the 1980s WWF wrestling <laughs> duo of Rick Martel and Tito Santana, white meat baby faces, just like Brad himself. <laughs> I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. This is Marvel. Your universe.